Welcome to Everyday Leadership and the new PNL podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Two podcasts for the price of one. Me and Paul decided to do something slightly different, and I know you're going to enjoy today's episode. For those who don't know who I am, my name is Shokrai Belusi. I am the host of Everyday Leadership Podcast. I'm also the founder of Mindset Shift and an executive coach. My co-host, Paul Spears, is going to introduce himself. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Paul, host of the new PL Principles and Leadership and Business Podcast series. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Um, thank you so much for for doing and co-hosting this with me as well. It's so it's a lot of fun, I think, and a really good uh, really good opportunity for both of us to explore some of those topics around leadership. Um, I wondered perhaps because you are, you know, you're a specialist in the area of leadership development and coaching and personal development. What, what are the characteristics from your perspective that define authentic leadership? I know it's a big part of your discussion with your clients and I wanted to, from my perspective, to understand how you define authentic leadership. I think I, I define authentic leadership, or for me, it starts off with a level of self-awareness. You need to be able to know who you are. You need to be able to understand how you look at things, how you look at life. And then it's that building block or is that foundation that you have that you can then build things on like values, relationships, service, vision. All of those kind of things all rely on that self-awareness piece. I mean, you can't really necessarily define your values if you don't know who you are, if you don't know how you look at things, if you know how you approach things, your values are always going to be very, very fluid, which is why a lot of the work I do with leaders and organizations, especially when you're doing the, the coaching, it's actually, let's spend some time working on you. Let's spend some time working on your mindset, because that's the lens that you filter all your all your thoughts through, all your processes through, all come throughout through your mindset lens. And that's why I actually call my company Mindset Shift. Because it's if you can shift your mindset, if you can have a deep understanding of who you are, what you're about, then you can then step into making the changes for yourself, for your people, for your organization, and you get that multiplier effect out. But a lot of times people don't want to spend that time working on themselves. Either because it's too hard for some it's too scary, for some it requires you going deep inside yourself, which you don't always necessarily want to do because you like to just hide certain parts of yourself. But if you're not willing to do that work, what you then end up with is a lot of fake leaders, people who say one thing and do the complete opposite. And then that builds a lack of trust in your team, a lack of trust in the organization, a lack of trust in the relationships that you have because people always see you as, you're not real. I can't connect with you because I know you're going to say one thing and do something else. I know we're going to have a conversation right now and then I'm going to get an email from someone else and be like, oh, this person said this, but that's not what we just talked about. And it's those little things that you see show up time and time again in organizations that all go back to authenticity and all go back to having a good self-awareness and then the building blocks around values, relationship, service and vision. Part of that, and I know you do a lot of work with this, is vulnerability. And I wondered, again, like self-awareness, how we define vulnerability, because it's an area that I, I explore a lot on the new P&L. And I, I find it hard to pin down what truly vulnerable leadership looks like and how a leader can assess the level of vulnerability she or he wants to express without it then becoming contrived vulnerability so how do you how do you explore how do you work with leaders to to understand a what vulnerability looks like for them and then i guess b how they deliver that vulnerability i think for me it starts with understanding that for me i see vulnerability and power especially as a polarity for those who don't know polarity, polarity is, is a paradox. It's basically when we see a lot of alternatives as directly opposing forces who that conflict with each other, but in reality, they're not. They're actually complementary and independent. For example, a lot of times you say change versus stability. It's not change versus stability. It's change and stability. That's the polarity. And power and vulnerability, for me, are, are polarity. If you can hold both perspectives of power and vulnerability 
then that means that actually I can still recognize that I can be vulnerable with my team, I can be vulnerable with my people, and yeah, it doesn't diminish any part of the power I I have or I hold or me as a human being. Let me I'll give you an example of that is when I used to um, work in, in corporate, I used to lead teams. I used to share with my team sort of some of my past um past, some of my past failures. Now you can think as a leader you have or the world has built up leadership as this thing where you're perfect, you're infallible, you don't fall, you don't fail, you don't mess up. But actually all that does is create this image of no one can really relate to you because when they, when your team messes up, when your team struggle, they're not going to come to you. They're going to go to someone else because you're the perfectionist. You're the you're the it. You're the best thing that's since sliced bread, as as the saying goes. But actually, when I shared with my team that actually I I messed up, I made a mistake, and here's what happened in that situation, and here's how I had to learn from it and grow through it. They saw me as human. They saw me as someone that does mess up. They saw me as someone that can own my mistakes. They saw me as someone who can apologize when things go wrong. And then that helped to build trust. So then when they made a mistake, they were there and they, were there and they shared with me. When things happened, things went wrong, they knew I will have their back and they knew I will support them because I have been there. I understand what they are going through. But that for me is where vulnerability steps in. It doesn't mean that a lot, a lot of times think, oh, vulnerability means I need to be weeping or crying and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not saying there's nothing, anything wrong with that, but I'm not saying it doesn't have to go to those level. It comes down to seeing your team and seeing your people as, as human beings. Even with the same thing with, um, with my kids. When I'm talking to my kids and I'm trying to share and connect with them, I, even though I might have a level of, yes, I'm your, I'm your father, and yes, I'm your parent, and yes, I have power, in a sense, over my kids, at the same time, I also express my vulnerability. I share with them that actually, this is what dad is dealing with right now. And this is what I'm dealing with at work, this is what I'm dealing with at home, these are the issues I'm, I'm going through. Um, and I understand what you're sharing with me. Because even though I'm an adult, I also go through very, very similar circumstances. And for that, it then builds that connection and that bridge between my kids. And that's what it comes down to. And I guess I'm curious to understand from your perspective and the work that you do, how does how do you see vulnerability? I think it's very very challenging because you know one one person's vulnerability or how they express vulnerability can be seen as a show of strength in one recipient and a show of weakness in another. So I think you know we we talk a lot about vulnerable leadership broadly speaking as a discourse, but I think it's really quite challenging for leaders to to understand what that looks like. And you you've just given a great definition there i guess from my perspective it's it's not too dissimilar it's just trying to be a more humane leader a more human leader to to demonstrate who you are in and outside work to to find that humor that resonates you know across your team and within your team and and i think importantly as well to also a key point of that or part of that vulnerability is is understanding that your perspective isn't the only perspective and trying to understand the lived experiences of those people in your team and what they are relative and comparative to you. Because I think we, a key part of vulnerability and a key part of self-awareness and leadership is, is recognizing, genuinely recognizing the privileged position you hold as a leader and the responsibility that comes with that. And I think sometimes when we move up the career change, we embrace the position of leadership, because it's a title and all those other things that appeal to the ego, and we embrace the responsibility in a professional sense, whether we always embrace the responsibility in the in the personal sense is questionable. So I think it's a, and this is a very old term, but it's a sense of realism and, and recognizing who else is in your team and what responsibility you have to them and how empathy and and curiosity play out in that responsibility and that vulnerability and that empathy. Yeah, that is, um, I love that, that approach actually. I think you touched on some key words around empathy and ego. Those two words are always uh, interesting terms that come up when it comes to leaders, especially over the last what 15 months when we've been going through the global pandemic. You've seen a lot of statements come out from organizations around we care about people we want to see, do what's best for them 
do you see ego has taken a back seat when it comes to leadership or do you just see that's just been a lot of statement made to get through this this season i think there's a bit of both i think there has been some genuine recognition that things should and need to change um i do think unfortunately however and and you know a quick assessment and and discussion with a few people as you would well know yourself as well through your own discussions will will show that a lot of those commitments that were made for example after black lives matter by corporates um haven't seen the light of day 12 months on so i think there's a little bit of both i think it has absolutely created an awareness and a and a desire for change in some people um i think how you the big challenge really is how leaders ensure that that desire for change and that aspiration for change is actually activated in the business month in month out week in week out because i think with everything that is the biggest challenge i think in business is we have a desire for change we have a desire to build a business and many other aspects of a business but how do you ensure that that is actively delivered in a business on a tuesday afternoon or a friday morning and what are the as we talk about in the the new pnl brand purpose institute what are the methodologies and the milestones and the mechanisms the 3ms that ensure that whatever your aspiration is for that business and whatever you want to deliver in that business is continually delivered and again it comes back to more than words it comes back to that responsibility that leaders have to sure express your your support for something but it's got to be much more than words and it's got to be much more than talk how are you delivering that day in day out in your business because that is where change happens change happens in action change doesn't happen in words words facilitate the beginning of change but change can only come from action yeah i think one of the um other principles that you have in the new pnl is called the the mantra principle and what is um just for those who don't know what is the mantra principle and how did you come up with it so the the mantra principle is a a framework that we've developed for a a more purposeful and a more principled business um we launched the methodology the beginning of this year when we launched the brand purpose institute and it was really in some response uh, uh in some regards a response to the the vinyl values as as what i call it that we see in business and that is value propositions and motivational statements and business principles and so on that either figuratively or literally sit on the walls of the business you know they're printed on shiny adhesive vinyl and they sit on the walls of offices or meeting rooms or behind company desks and they're supposed to represent everything a business stands for but far too often they end up becoming a a substitute for rather than a demonstration of those values and principles so the framework the mantra principle is designed to help businesses bring their principles and purpose back into the heart of their culture and their vision and the way their leadership thinks so it can in turn feed the commercial and strategic and operational arteries of those businesses and the mantra is a the mantra principle is an acronym um they are the six business critical components we believe business needs for more purposeful business they are moral leadership absolute inclusion a nation of creatives total communication radical innovation an active alignment and you know we we took about 2 years to develop the the mantra principle and it was based on conversations with leaders and our own research and our own experience in business over over many decades and we deliver that program those six principles six core components either through the new pnl uh, institute directly or through a range of partners who have specialist skills in some of these core areas we will work with specialist partners in the areas of absolute inclusion for example or radical innovation areas around nation of creatives and total communication we will deliver as the new pnl institute itself because those are our areas of specialization but it is those key six areas that we believe fulfill the principles of a more purposeful business and all of them rely on the first and the last really moral leadership because everything is driven as you highlighted earlier through authentic and genuine and moral leadership and then everything is only delivered through active alignment through as i said earlier 
the commitment to those three M's, to those milestones and methodologies and mechanism that ensure that those core components are weaved into the fabric of, of business every day. Do you still get, do you find that leaders struggle with, in fact, let me rephrase my question. If the six areas that you highlighted under the mantra principles, so the moral absolute, initial, initial creativity, total communication, radical innovation, and active alignment, of those six, which are the ones that you've seen organizations and leaders in particular struggle with the most? That's a good question. I think total communication is a really interesting area for us because to touch on the point we made earlier, there are many leaders who want to implement change. There are many leaders who want to to move their business forward and create a more inclusive environment and a more creative environment and a more innovative environment. But they lack and this is where it comes to self-awareness, I think, as well. But they lack the communication skills and abilities to to bring employees and other stakeholders on board. And they lack it in part because of a, a lack of self-awareness, because they don't have the, the empathy to understand where those they are speaking to are coming from. So they want to deliver a message, but they don't necessarily have the, the skills and and mindset to recognize that the message that they're trying to deliver will not necessarily resonate with the audience they're communicating to. And they want to have a monologue. They don't want to have a dialogue. So I think they struggle with that communication. But I think also many leaders, and you know, we put a lot of leaders on pedestals, either negative or positive pedestals, but leaders are humans too, clearly. They, they are you and they are I, and they are many other people in business who are struggling in their own minds to to find the right way to approach things, to find the right way to deliver and to embrace many of the concepts that need to be embraced in business right now and many of the, the important components of business. So I think it's the it's incumbent upon leaders to take that responsibility. It's also incumbent upon the likes of you and I and those others that are working with leaders to recognise that we need to find a safe space for them to to express their concerns and their frustrations and their fears. So then you can work through those concerns and fears and frustrations with them. So they then have the courage and the understanding and the empathy and the communication to to discuss these things more effectively in a, in a more engaging way with employees. So we can all work together towards those ambitions. I 100%, 100% agree with that. And there is, I guess there is a issue that I see happening on a regular basis, which is, I agree we need to create the space for leaders, that safe space for leaders to be able to talk and express themselves. But one of the biggest frustrations I've had is, as you said previously, especially when I think about um, last year in Black Lives Matter, you had, uh, I think it was June the 1st last year, there was a letter printed in the Sunday Times. And it was 70 companies which make up a couple of million employees in, in the UK. And they listed all this. The whole point of the letter was take action and back up your words, basically. Between then and now, not a lot's really happened. Just been a lot a lot of words, not a lot of actions behind it. And as much as we can create the space for leaders to be able to step in to be like, this is a safe, confidential space, express yourself so we can have some real conversations, it starts with leaders actually admitting there is a problem. And that's the bit that I've I've really, really struggled with because a lot of leaders don't want to admit that there is a problem. They wanna they don't want to admit that actually we've got things wrong. And then goes back to I guess to that whole I guess it's ego, it's empathy, it's self awareness. But those traits you need the individual to be able to step into that and be like, you can't heal what you don't reveal, one of my favourite statements, and that's what it is. Until you're willing to step into be like, we've got things wrong, and being vulnerable, open, and saying we have not done this well, despite the numerous amount of awards we've won, despite the values we've got written on our walls and all our different printing paper and everything else that we have, 
we have got this wrong and we need to do something about it. When they do that, then they can step into the space where we're like, okay, let's step into a space where it's safe, it's confidential. Let's have a real conversation as to how we can move things forward as well as express the different feelings I have. I mean, I've had one of the hardest, I've had a lot of hard conversations the last 15 months. And I haven't minded being in those spaces where I'm listening to someone share their frustration and talk about their privilege. But because they had the space to be able to do that, and I knew that they were trying to figure things out, it was okay. And by us having that space and having that dialogue and being able to go back and forth, they were able to see certain things. I was able to understand myself and grow, learn and develop and adapt my language to make sure that the message doesn't change. But how I communicate also changes so I can then influence people. But that comes from dialogue. But that originally started from someone being open to say that I want to learn more. So how do we change that part or how can we change that part of leaders who don't want to admit there's a problem? I mean, there will be some leaders who will never admit there's a problem and that is... That is a real challenge, I think, for, for business as a whole. I think there are probably, I won't have all of the answers to this, but I think there, in my view, there are two sides to it. One is, again, the likes of you and I and others who are working in the space to keep pushing and challenging and pushing and challenging in those environments. But then I think it's also helping leaders to recognize that there's a subtle difference between a leadership coach and a counsellor, and, and if they want to express their concerns and, you know, and, and why they feel things are wrong and so on, then, then that's fine. But you're not just here to listen as a counsellor, you're also here as a leadership coach to say, thank you for expressing the way you've felt. Now, what do we do about it? You are a person and you're also a leader. So I have understood, and I've, as you've rightly just said to me, and I've change my language and so on and I've learned from you but now what have you learned from yourself and how do we now apply those learnings in the business because you've expressed yourself as a person and your fears and frustrations and misunderstandings and apprehensions now you need to step up for yourself as a leader and understand how we work together whether it's you and your clients or me and mine how we work together to implement the change in business you know I, I I often think about my mother in this sort of conversation because she has been a, a long-time community activist and advocate in New Zealand on behalf of many marginalised groups in Aotearoa New Zealand, whether that's the disabled or the elderly or homeless teenagers and so on in Māori communities. And she said the frustration she has always found is that she has to present the evidence for change but those who she is speaking to don't necessarily have to speak or present the evidence for the status quo. And she said it is a, a constant frustration for her that whatever she wants to change, whatever she wants to take action on, that she has to present the business case or the community case or whatever it is for it. But she said if that's, and this is mum speaking, but if that's what she needs to do because of the way it is to present the case for change, then she will do that and she will push it as hard as she can and she will continue to agitate and activate and 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 push for change and if it takes evidence and that's the reality of the situation then that's what she will do and her hope and her ardent hope and she's been doing this for 50 years but her ardent hope is that one day she won't have to present the case for change in the way she has and she can see things changing and i know things have changed with some of those marginalised groups in New Zealand, and I can see that case for change. And, and I hope that we can all see change in society. The fact that we are having these conversations is representative of some change, but we have so much more to change. And to go back to your point on leadership, I guess it's us again working with leaderships to recognise that the conversation is the beginning of change. As I said earlier, it is not the end. You've expressed your your feelings, and, and, and that's great, and you've expressed it in a safe environment. But now you've expressed your desire for change. What are you going to do to facilitate change? And also working with them to recognise that change doesn't have to be all-encompassing tomorrow, but you have to keep taking consecutive steps 
day after day after day towards that change and you have to commit to that change and whatever change happens to be we all know that you know whatever training we do whatever change we want to implement whatever innovation we want to make in the business it will only happen if it happens day after day after day after day and if the management is committed to it beyond belief if leadership believes it believes in it and sows it into the core part of their thinking because if the proposition starts with the ticking of a box and whatever it happens to be it will never go any further and that is my frustration with the rainbow flag for example on um, logos when pride celebrations come around how deep is the commitment to all of these things you know and and recognizing i think even in the language to go back to your earlier point these are not social issues they are human rights issues they are social justice issues they're intrinsic to the way we function as a society they are not a nice to have they're not another thing to tick or another thing to put on the agenda of the board meeting they are human rights and until leaders recognize the fundamental right for equality whether it is gender or race or or class or whatever it happens to be until that is recognized within a business then the depth of commitment to change will never come because they don't see it as essential to society and as, as essential to individuals they see it as an agenda item on a board discussion yes yes and yes the, the frustration what you just shared about that about what your mom just said is probably number one on my list of the business case what's the business case for this change when it's a moral change it's a why should i have to justify doing this why should i have to justify the i think in fact let me, let me use t take coaching for example and we had we had a conversation about this previously coaching is a very good example of when you go in and you have a conversation it's very hard to measure it at the start it's very hard to say that actually here's the ROI that you're going to get from this because that involves you doing certain things. If the client doesn't do what they need to do, you're never going to get that end result. So in that in that relationship, who's at fault? The coach or the client? It would be down to the client, but it could be seen as the coach's fault because he hasn't driven the client hard enough. But actually, if the client does what they need to do, you now get the returns because it flows back into them personally, flows back into them to the business, but you can't measure it from the start. It all started with the client willing to step into that coaching arena, that coaching relationship and take a chance and take action to see what happens afterwards. It's exactly the same with what we're talking about right now. When it comes to that moral change, it's we can't go about this the same way we've got about every single thing. One plus one does not equal two when you're dealing with issues around intersectionality, around race, gender, um, disabilities. It's a very complex issue because it is down to, it's dealing with human beings. And if it's a complex issue, that means you cannot have a complicated way of approaching things, i.e. it's not formulaic. If you're acting into it, you're sensing to it, then you take action, but you have to keep on trying. And more importantly, you have to step outside of your fear and step into that learning because learning means you're going to get things wrong but if you're going by i need a business case for this it just doesn't and it, it really my brain in mind i have a finance background so business cases were <laughs> were my jam were things i did on a regular basis but it frustrates me when we're talking about stuff like this and just still saying i need to justify a business case for equality or equity or inclusion or diversity or gender the stats have been there. I mean, you've had study upon study from McKenzie's, HBR's. They've done years of research. They've given you the business case of the amount of billions that are there available if you tapped into this. Yet, that has not made a difference. So, why do we still need to keep referring back to this rather than focusing on the moral side of things? It's caring about your people. For me, it's a shift from the Milton Friedman ways of business, yes. where it was profit over people to now moving into the new way of people over profit. I mean, we see the same thing happening with, with hybrid working. Hybrid working or flexible working was something that people have wanted to do for years. Yes. But the biggest issue why it never happened was because organizations were afraid. 
They were afraid they wouldn't know how to build relationships, connect with their people. They were afraid that people would work less for whatever reason. And most importantly, it came down to micromanagement. Yeah. They were very used to managing their people with power, with leaning over their shoulders, and they didn't want to lose that. It's a um it's a tremendous frustration where so much change seems to like that example, hybrid working, only seems to come from commercial necessity or regulation, you know, and that's a I I I don't have an answer for the point that you've made. I don't know I don't understand because I'm not in that mindset why people just don't see human rights as human rights and business. I don't I don't I don't understand that frame of mind and that mentality and I I do feel we can see change and we can see pockets of change but as with so many things it is far too slow and takes far too long and you're absolutely right that there is still far too much evidence that needs to be presented when the evidence has been abundantly clear for far too long already. Um, I don't know where that where that change in the mindset of a of a CEO of a business ultimately needs to come from. Uh, it would be really interesting to to understand from your perspective. You know, when you work with CEOs, either in a, a leadership or a personal sense, there's always there's a lag between the personal development of that CEO and then becoming a a better leader, if you like, and the performance improvement that they can make on a business and as we've just said commercially businesses always want to see a KPI they want to see demonstrable results and they want to see them generally sooner rather than later how do you manage the expectation of the delivery of your leadership work with a CEO or a senior management um, executive in terms of what work you're going to do with them now and how that will impact on the business over the medium term. I think it's about creating what well, I call them homework. We'll give them actions that they need to take that they can actually see the impact that that has. I mean, a great example was I worked with um, a leader who was just in, in a C-suite and he was talking about not having enough time. A lot of them complain about that. But he was talking about not having enough time, basically, and he had a million one different things to do. And one of the tasks I gave him was just for, I tend to meet my clients once every two weeks because I like to give them that space to actually take action between our, our sessions. And I was like, just for the next two weeks, I want you to intentionally create some space in your calendar, so as soon as we come off this call, in your calendar with your PA that you do not allocate anything else into. It's just time for you to actually step away from meetings and everything else and do what you really need to do. In that two week period, and he did that consistently all the way throughout. First thing he said was he found that hard. There were a number of different things that came up and he was like, oh, I've got, I've got slot. And first three days, he said, the times he had allocated, he canceled and he put meetings in there because that came naturally to him. But then he got to that point where he was like, actually, let me try this out. I've got absolutely nothing to lose. I'm doing coaching. The company organization is paying for it. I've got nothing to lose. He said it, it will might it will make a difference. Let me just see what it is. And he did it for say so it wasn't in the full two weeks he did it for. Our next session, he was like, number one, I have so much clearer strategy about what I want to do with my team. Because I had that time to have to step back. I actually, rather than being in work and acting in from a very operational um, way of approaching things I started to think more strategically so and that I needed that space and that time that I had in my calendar to then be like actually I can put this person to place here I can delegate that task this person can pick this up but actually wait and he just there thinking about different things and by the time that he said they not have or by creating the time he now was able to actually grow the business and grow the team in a very very different way which then leads to the bottom line of the organization by he having that time and that space, he was able to put people in higher positions and give them more responsibility, which developed the individual, which is what they wanted in the first place. So again, it helps the team morale, helps productivity because they're doing different things. But all that stems with him having more time and me being asked him just to do something as small as put the time in your diary. 
And it's those little things that you can start to see in the coaching sessions where you're like, okay, based on what we just discussed, if you take this action steps in this areas, see what happens. And then bearing in mind, there are times when they don't just happen straight away. There are times when it takes a longer period to flow through. But when it eventually clicks into place, you're like, wow, now I understand it. Now I get it. And then you now get the long-term flow through of, it hits that individual first, then it goes into the team or your colleagues, then it goes wider into the organization and then it goes into the bottom line. And that's how you see things yeah. playing out time and time again. Do you, um, I'd love to get your view on this, whether you feel the leaders you work with or some of those you work with, whether they, whether they understand the distinction between diversity and inclusion, for example, that you know, you can have a diverse workforce whether you give voice to that diverse workforce and whether you give support and and an environment that encourages lived experiences to express themselves and to be promoted and so on, I think is quite another thing. And I I just wondered whether you're, some of those you work with, whether they understand the distinction between diversity and inclusion. The short answer will be no. <laughs> they they do not. Um, most of them, most of the thoughts and conversations that you have earlier on, especially, is I'm gonna have I I do have a diverse team. I'm like yeah, but you can have a diverse team. So another example I like to use is there was a team of I think there were fourteen of them in total. And in that 14, there were a mixture of men, women, um, different different backgrounds. But out of that 14, six of them all came from, I'm going to call them elite establishments like Eton. So they were all like kind of like Etonites. And the rest of them didn't. And what happened in that team was <laughs> the leader, without really thinking about it unconsciously, he always listened to those six people. The rest of the team, he didn't listen to. And the rest of the team felt ostracized. And he didn't see it because as far as he was concerned, I have a very, very diverse team. But I'm like, yeah, but like you said, can mm. they speak up? Do they have a voice? Do you have you built relationships with them? Do you understand them? Have you actually taken a step back and asked yourself in every single meeting that we have, who's talking and who isn't? Who feels minimized and who has a voice? And it's those kind of things. That's true inclusion. Inclusion is everyone has the space to be able to speak up. If any of those six spoke up and gave feedback and be like, actually, Steve, we shouldn't we shouldn't do that. And Steve's not ruling, by the way. But <laughs> Steve, we should we shouldn't do that. He was fine with it. If the rest of the team, the rest of the um the other eight actually said anything else, it became an argument. And it's like, oh, you're being negative, or stop thinking that way. And this was all feedback and observations that I was able to pick up when I observed the team dynamics. And I'd heard from the eight, I heard from the six, I heard from him individually as well as observing for myself. But until I was able to give him a different um, perspective, like, the, you know, about Johari's window, where it's that view that you don't see, he didn't see all of this. And that's what we're not able to get. You have a diverse team, but it's not inclusive. You have a diverse team, but not everyone has a psychological safety to be able to express themselves. You have a diverse team, but six of them are happy to turn their cameras on. Eight of them do not want to turn the cameras on because they think, what's the point of us being there? They're still hard workers. They've still got voices and opinions and ideas mm -hmm. that they can bring to the table, but they don't feel they can. Therefore, they are not included. Yeah. I know we were um, talking about mindsets um, earlier on, and you used to work in, in organizations. You had very, very senior positions. And you stepped away from from that into into what you're doing right now, and I'll be curious to learn what was that journey like for you because I think there are a lot of leaders who can learn a lot from you actually stepping out from what you were doing to to where you are right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I the new PNL started, um, well, the idea for the new PNL started around six or seven years ago. I had a brand reputation and management consultancy and, and uh, marketing consultancy. And I was, I guess, the recipient of a series of quite unethical actions that sort of took me and the business pretty much to its knees. Um, but being a creative at heart, I came up with an idea out of it. Um, and it was the new P&L. And, and it kind of hung around in the back of my mind for a few years while I 
rebuilt things and so on. Um, and then about 18 months ago, the idea of the new PL and um, and a podcast merged somewhere in my mind. So I thought I'd dip my toe in and just see whether there was interest in the new PL and principles and leadership and business and try out the podcast. And it seemed to really resonate both with guests and uh, and and listeners alike. And we grew quite substantially in the first 12 months and um, to the point where at the end of last year, I launched the new PL Brand Purpose Institute, which is really, I guess, a conglomeration of my professional experience and reputation and communications and creativity and purpose, but also all of those leadership lessons I've started to learn with the new PL podcast series over the last 18 months. And we've interviewed some amazing people. And one thing my my partner and children get really sick of me saying every week is coming off these conversations and saying, wow, she was incredible, or he was incredible. And you just take so much away. And what 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 you realize is there is a really passionate movement towards principled leadership in business. And we need to find a way for for more people to come together and to have these discussions and, and to create more of that movement in business because there is so much desire out there, but it is so much it is so splintered because everyone is thinking it individually and is it is only through these conversations that you or I are having and, and then the actions we take as a result of it that these things will start to change in business. But so I learned I launched the new PL Brand Purpose Institute at the end of last year. We developed the methodology, as I said, over the last sort of eighteen months to two years. And I wouldn't suggest for a moment, and I'm you may have felt the same when you started your business that you know, it's not easy. Um, and particularly when you're trying to do something a little bit different and you're trying to convince leadership to come back to our earlier conversations that they need to reevaluate some of the principles upon which the business is founded and the way they deliver business. It's a very hard sell often. Some people get it. Some people take a lot more convincing. But, but I'm less about a job now and more about a mission and I have totally found what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. Um, I described it to someone the other month as I feel like for most of my professional career I've been standing in the right field but looking the wrong way and then around 18 months ago I turned around and realized I was supposed to be running for the other goal line and I feel quite late in life in my early 50s that I have completely discovered what I am supposed to be. It's brought together all of the curiosity and experience and I'm I'm an information junkie and I have collected information in my head my entire life and finally the new P&L has given me an outlet for my passion and an outlet for my professional purpose and and an outlet for all of that seemingly useless information I've collected my entire life so I feel very blessed to have discovered it I only wish I had discovered it at 25 not in my not in my early 50s but we are where we are <laughs> yeah. I, I love that 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 started with I'm just gonna dip my toe in and see and see where this goes and it blew up and I think that was very that statement really stood out to me because you didn't know whether it was going to work or not but you were willing to try because it was something that's been bubbling inside of you to see where this actually goes are you willing to try and risk failure and obviously you got the reward and you're growing something that's amazing something that's so much needed and something that's required and something that you're learning from on a day in day out basis as well but it started with you actually taking that risk yeah and i and i guess and i'd like to explore your your road to where you are as well but just because you have a dream and just because you have a passion, as you know, and most entrepreneurs know, that doesn't that doesn't guarantee success. All that guarantees is that you've got the idea. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then you've got to work damn hard to make it work. And um, I mean, what what about you? What what's your what's your road? I know you started off as an accountant and and you've come into leadership. What is what was the trigger that kind of moved you into leadership from from accountancy, if you like? 
I think um, throughout my my finance career, I've always been around stepping outside of the boxes. So when I started off, um, started off as, I guess, a pure accountant and I moved into, well, I was never about numbers. I was always about people. It was about people growth, people development. So I moved from, I guess I'll call pure accountancy into finance and into business partnering, where it was also a mixture of numbers, people, understand relationships, leading teams, negotiations, all those kind of different things, a lot of sales stuff. And throughout that whole space of time, it was one, I, I was the one of one of one in multi-global organizations, which was very, very lonely and I had to navigate different things around racism and bullying. So I wanted to change that. But the, I guess the biggest shift and the fun that I was reflecting on this yesterday was I noticed that when I moved, especially from like finance into the commercial side of things, I moved into a role that I should not have had. I literally was like, when that company, that organization was, you work in finance and that's it. You don't get involved in the commercial side of things. You have a commercial manager who does all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to do commercial stuff. So I was shadowing him. So I was still doing my day-to-day job, but then shadowing him, understanding what he does, his, his roles, I was like, oh, I could do that. And then I started doing it myself, bit by bit. And every single time I tried to do it myself, I was told, you should not do that. But I still tried because I was told you should not, not that you cannot. And that's a very, very, very fine line for me. And I pushed that boundary to the point where I'm like, actually, I can take over this whole thing myself. I can do the finance and I can do the commercial side of things. And here's the evidence that shows that actually I can do both. And I was like, and they were like, okay, fine, go ahead and do it. And by them trying something which I already demonstrated that I could do because they couldn't say no then, it showed them that actually wow, this is possible. You can actually combine both of these roles together. But that came from, again, thinking thinking outside the box. I loved IT. IT has been a passion of mine since I was about like 12. And even in my corporate career, I was fortunate enough to be able to run an, um, a massive SAP implementation project in a global company. And I helped that company design their, like, their warranty systems, which is like building it from scratch. And then we rolled it out in 12 of the countries worldwide whilst we're doing my finance role and doing the IT project at the same time. Again, that's not, you would think, oh, wow, you're an accountant, you're in finance. You think in a very one-dimensional way. I was always very much, no, I have different passions that I enjoy. And if I have the opportunity, I'm going to explore them in different environments I am. And it's that drive which underpins, always been underpinned by people learning and understanding people, building relationships, leading teams where I think in all the teams that have led, the difference in age gap has always been 10 years. The youngest person has always been older than me by 10 years. So not only am I the only black person there, I'm the youngest one there. This, all the different teams I've led in different countries have all had more experience than I have. So you come in there with, with that whole, oh my gosh, there's a lot of insecurity here. What's going to happen? How are these people going to react to me? But then I flipped around that actually, they're human beings. So my question always used to be, what can I do to help you grow? And that always just take them by surprise. Like, why do you care about me? Like, But we built that relationship. And the more I invested in my people, the more they invested back in, I guess, the organization. Because that's the way of saying thank you. And then we generated high performing teams made the nine figure revenues for the organization and they were happy but it always came down to people so years ago when i got to the position where i was given the the title and a six-figure role i was like i took a role i like to always reflect on things and for me that reflection popped up a question that said if you take this role are you staying in the box or are you stepping outside of the box and for me it was i'll be staying in a box i'll be staying confined if i took this and therefore decided not to I didn't have anything else to go to, <laughs> to, to be honest. But I was like, I couldn't stay in that box. I couldn't stay stuck. And when I go back, for me, go back to authenticity where I want to be real and authentic with my wife. I want to be real and authentic with my kids. I want to be able to have conversations with my family that says, I want you to step outside of your comfort zone. I want you to be able to try something new and not just say that with my words, but you can look at daddy and be like, actually, daddy's done it. So I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen financially speaking. I don't know how things were going to play out. But I knew 
that role and that title I'd been offered was not my purpose. My purpose was around people, growth, changing stuff around equity and inclusion and belonging in organizations. And therefore, I said no to that role, created my company, did exactly what you did. And it was a very difficult period of time for a while financially because like, oh, I don't know what was going to happen. But we kept on going, kept on pushing through and slowly but surely we keep on developing and we keep on adapting, we keep on growing, keep on learning. And that's where I am right now. I mean, it's an awesome story. And faith is such a an underrated part of the entrepreneurial journey, I think, in many respects, isn't it? You know, you've particularly in those early days, you have to you have to believe beyond all belief that this is going to work, and you have to you have to somehow find a way in your mind to. We all have a, a, a negative narrative in some shape or form in our mind about our ability and uh, you know imposter syndrome and all those other things and there's this weird balance with an entrepreneur in the early stages of a venture where you have that narrative on one shoulder questioning your ability at all and then you have this fervent and passionate drive on the other telling you to do it and how you how you balance that in your mind as a as a as an entrepreneur is a really I don't know how it works in the brain, but it's a really tricky dynamic, I think, to to believe in what you're doing, even though you don't believe in yourself sometimes. That is that is faith. That is the definition of faith. That's 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 what it is. It's it's believing in the in the unknown, in the unseen. Because and it's fundamental. I mean, it's for me personally, it's faith has been the bedrock of why I do what I do and I step into or step out of, of my comfort zone into uncomfortable positions where people around you don't get it. And you're trying to see it, they're like, yeah, but this just doesn't make any sense. You're going to leave that and go into the unknown? Are you gonna? I was like, yeah, because that's what I want to do. I have faith it's going to work out. And if it doesn't, I'll learn from it and adapt from it and I keep on pushing through. But it's very interesting that you say that because as leaders in organizations, as people who are supposed to be visionaries, isn't that how you're supposed to operate? Aren't you supposed to take people into new and unknown lands and bring them along with you on that journey? But not every leader is a natural leader, are they? I mean, some some leaders have made it by virtue of longevity um, or they've interviewed well. Um, but not, not every leader can be a natural visionary and not every visionary can be a natural administrative leader. You know, it's... Again, to go back to our earlier point, we have this perception, you know, we put leaders on this pedestal, but but actually they are vulnerable, fallible, insecure human beings like the rest of us. And, and that's where where your job is so important is to to almost give many of those leaders the confidence which the job role suggests they have, but but their but their inner being doesn't believe they're quite where they need to be or could be or should be. So it's um, as much as we need to put pressure on leaders and, and ensure that they are responsible and that they do the right thing and, and all of those things that we've said here today, we also need to ensure that beneath all of that, that the job, the important role that you do and, and that others in your in your sector do is to give them the confidence underneath it all to believe that they can do all of those things that they've been tasked with, I guess. I just need to ask, are leaders born or are leaders made? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is totally, totally an impossible question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think... Some people, perhaps, like a like a like a sprinter, like a great rugby player or a football player. Some people are more naturally imbued with leadership qualities. And you know, I, my son and daughter play rugby, and even from a very young age, you can see when they're playing, you know who the natural rugby players are in that team. You can just see that they've got an instinctive way with the ball they can read the match even at a very young age but on the other side of it you can have very naturally talented talented players 
that never make it because they never take the opportunity to build on those skills and to, you know, you, you may be a good sprinter, but you don't become a world champion sprinter unless you put in an enormous amount of work on your physical and mental well-being and strength and ability. Conversely, some people who perhaps may appear to not be naturally leaders become amazing leaders because they work hard at it, because they do the personal development work that's required to make them leaders. And ironically, in my mind, and I might be wrong, you, you tell me you're, you're, you're a specialist in this area, but sometimes they ironically become great leaders by virtue of the fact that they never thought they would be a great leader. So they recognize in others coming through that they are now responsible for, they recognize a little bit of themselves in that person who doesn't speak up in a meeting, in that person who is shy or appears to be aloof but is really unconfident because they were there themselves. So I think sometimes sometimes those who never thought they could be good leaders make great leaders because they recognize the in, the fallibilities and the insecurities and the lack of confidence in others and they lift those people up as part of their role. So I think there's a little bit of both in in finding a leader. Can I throw that back at you now? What's your view? <laughs> First of all, I, I need to say that definition of that you just gave, absolutely, absolutely loved. Um, and I think my view is, is very similar. I think most are made. There's far and few between that are born. Yeah. And the ones that are made are the ones that are willing to to change, to develop, to adapt. I mean, Nelson Mandela is a very, very great example of before he went into prison, he was this very fiery character who just was angry. Rightly so, but he was angry. And that anger drove him and unfortunately, he landed in prison because of apartheid and everything else. When he came out, he came out a completely different character. He was still driven. He still wanted to make a difference. He still wanted to change. But his style had adopted. Now, you're going into a prison that you've been put into, which you should not have been put into the first place. You think someone will get more angry and more irate and more frustrated. He came up the complete opposite where he actually was able to introspectively just reflect and his mission did not change. His message in a sense did not change. His delivery changed. He moved from thinking in a very one dimensional way to thinking actually how can I create something that invites and brings other people in. And that is why I say I don't he wasn't I would I wouldn't say when he went in he was a leader a lot of people might disagree with me but I wouldn't say when he went in he was a leader because he was very one-dimensional when he came out he was able to hold multiple perspectives at the same time those of black people in South Africa and those of white people in South Africa and that allowed him to be able to tailor his message and the way he communicated to change and shape and eventually eradicate apartheid in that country. That is being made, that's being molded. And he actually allowed that to happen. That's how I see leaders. The leaders are the ones who don't say, oh, this is who I am, I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna stay limited. They're not the ones who are driven by ego. They're the ones who are willing to learn, always be learning, always be adopting, always be listening, always be thinking, how can I improve? Those who are willing to be in rooms where they're not the smartest ones. Those who are willing to surround themselves that people who will question them and hold them accountable. That, for me, is, yeah. is true leadership. I agree. I agree. Um, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Time has flown by. I can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> it's been absolute, absolutely brilliant. I really appreciate the work that you and the PNL Brand Purpose Institute are doing. Likewise. If organizations can embed the mantra principles into their culture, it'll make such a fundamental difference to the way organizations are run and 
back to that whole people of a prophet, which I like to talk about quite a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, ultimately that, that comes completely back to to you and the great work that you're doing, that it all starts with self-aware leadership, doesn't it? It all has to be driven. You know, a, a business is a living organism, but it is fed through the leadership that drives it and how healthy it is or, or how unhealthy it is is all driven through the leadership that that guides that organization at any given point in time and that's why the the work you are doing is so important because you are not just developing leaders you are developing the business that they are responsible for by virtue of the work you do and and it's a it's a critically important role you play it's everyone working together to play their part isn't it coming out at different angles but with that overall goal of of change and change for people that's why it's great to be able to have you on the podcast have this great conversation with you and to support what you're doing and support each other and what we're doing to try and drive that mission forward so thank you very very much thank you so much thank you very much awesome this is the everyday leadership meets the new pnl podcast